from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this pre-Independence Day weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Fireworks or a dud? From major acreage reports and grain stocks to June hogs and pigs, we will get an update and some reaction to USDA's biggest reports of the year. What surprised me is the amount of volatility around that average. Still desperate for rain to a much-needed drink. It's leading economists to weigh in on possible impacts to yields. As drought expands its reach across the Midwest, the secret to weathering the dryness may be in your soils. Generally, it's a 10-15% yield increase. The town of Mayberry may be fictional in the Andy Griffith show, but one rural community is embracing the popularity of it all. And in John's world. Editing the declaration. Now for the news, USDA painting a clearer picture of what it says farmers planted this spring and summer with its annual June acreage report. That's as traders were closely watching the weather, plus the big reports from USDA. Some big surprises in USDA's June acreage report with a spike in corn acres, but a large reduction in soybeans. Both those were way off pre-report estimates. USDA shows farmers planted 94.1 million acres of corn this year. That's up from the 91.9 million reported back in March in the prospective plantings report. The 94.1 million is also 6% higher than what farmers planted last year. The other surprise is soybeans. The June acreage report shows 83.5 million acres of soybeans were planted compared to the 87.51 million estimated in March. It's also 5% below last year. Cotton acres also seeing a slight drop at 11.1 million. That's down from the 11.3 million in USDA's March planting intentions survey and a whopping 19% reduction from last year. USDA also estimates farmers planted 49.6 million acres of wheat. That's down slightly from the 49.9 million in March, but still up 9% from last year. And as for grain stocks, those estimates also lower than what the trade expected. USDA shows as of June 1st, corn stocks are at 4.106 billion bushels, which is lower than the 4.35 billion at the same time last year. According to USDA, soybean stocks set at 796 million bushels, also lower than the 968 million in June of 2022. Wheat stocks, those are projected at 580 million, lower than the 698 million a year ago. We'll take a deep dive into all these numbers coming up in our roundtable. The dryness in the Midwest continuing to weigh on crop condition ratings. USDA putting the nation's corn crop at only 50% good to excellent and 51% of the soybean crop rated in the good to excellent category. That means this year's corn and soybean conditions are now the worst since 1988. An update to the U.S.-Mexico corn trade that we've been following. Mexico's president is placing a 50% tariff on white corn imports. The president says the decision is to help control inflation and boost domestic production. The tariff is expected to be in place through the end of the year. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack adding he expects the tariff to have very little impact on U.S. exports. Most of the corn the U.S. exports is yellow corn, says Vilsack. The decision follows a February ban for Mexican food companies preventing them from using flour made with GMO white corn. Vilsack says that decision had already essentially closed the market and it's currently being disputed under the USMCA. USDA says roughly 1% of U.S. production is white corn. However, Mexico imports about 20% of that production. 
The EPA says it plans to revise the Waters of the U.S. rule by September 1st. It follows the Supreme Court ruling in May that restricted the federal government's regulatory scope over certain bodies of water. While the agency has not provided details on how it will regulate wetlands until September, the Biden administration's previous WOTUS definition extended protections to almost all streams and wetlands nationwide. USDA announcing plans to invest nearly $500 million to increase the availability of domestic biofuels. The money comes from the Inflation Reduction Act. Secretary Vilsack says it's further proof of the administration's support for biofuels. This new money, though, will support the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. It's a cost share for fuel stations to help them build or retrofit higher blend infrastructure. The USDA will start accepting applications for the grants in July. All right, that's it for the news. Will rains be significant enough to finally change the growing drought picture across the Midwest? We'll have a check of your forecast next. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new Loadmaster 2X Harvesting Dual Box Dump Cart is capable of lifting and dumping up to 60,000 pounds of product and filling 36 or 40-foot semi-trailers in just one dump. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Andrew Whitmire joining us this weekend. Andrew, many of our viewers are hoping for rain this weekend, but hearing from some in Arkansas who say the rains they've seen have also brought severe damage. I mean, look at this. They've had multiple hailstorms and 100 mile per hour straight line winds. One farmer had nearly 1,000 acres on just his farm wiped out in the storms. And I know, Andrew, you are keeping a close eye on the rains, but also the possibility of severe weather. And looking at the jet stream tying for the start of this brand new week here again, we've been watching some ridge riders here as we have gone throughout the end of June. But now as we flip the calendar over into July, we're going to be watching for a few subtle troughs that'll be trying to work their way through. And again, Arkansas here uh, likely going to pick up a little bit more water with some more thunderstorm threats here as we go forward into parts of the holiday weekend and just after the holiday weekend as well. We'll try to squeeze out some of these drops around the Corn Belt, which is really needed for this moisture especially across parts of the Midwest at Great Lakes states. And it does look like again, we're going to be watching for a few hit and miss scattered showers and thunderstorms as we go throughout the mid portion of this brand new week. And we're still going to be watching again for that relentless triple digit heat down across the parts of Texas here as we head on into the first week full week here of July going forward into the future radar here as we go throughout this brand new week here again. We're going to be watching for a few subtle systems up around the Great Lakes parts of the New England coastline and then as we go forward even on into Tuesday, maybe even in parts of the Dakotas, the northern Prairie, they're getting some of that liquid gold that we call rain here. And as we continue on here into Wednesday and even on into Thursday, we're going to be watching again the potential uh, grain and also the Corn Belt regions here for some much needed water as we go into midweek as the front looks to kind of move on through and that'll bring with it some much needed moisture chances hopefully to parts of the central plains parts of the Midwest 
and Great Lakes states, which again really do need the moisture. Looking at our root zone map here, and again, where you see these darker red shaded areas, this is the Corn Belt area that's been completely dry throughout the heartland here of the country, really needing that moisture. And if we take a look at this week's U.S. Drought Monitor outlook here, and again, it continues to show again that relentless drought across the far eastern portion there of Nebraska down into Kansas, and we continue to watch again a severe drought continuing and a drought ongoing to expand up across parts of the Midwest to Great Lakes states, including Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, as well as Michigan tapping on into again some very dry weather and we need every drop at this point. Every drop does count. Looking at a precipitation outlook here as we go throughout this first full week of July. And notice that again we are watching again for an uptick in moisture chances here across a good chunk here of the country. And then as we head on into July 12th as well, again, we're going to be looking at the Corn Belt regions very closely here for some much more needed precipitation here across the country. And just a quick look here at our temperature outlook here as we go throughout July 4th and into this upcoming weekend, we're going to be looking at a cool down across the heartland of the country, but still looking at some triple digit heat for the far southern parts there of Texas. While the weather continues to be a major market mover between that and USDA reports, we have a lot to talk about with our marketing analysts this weekend. Joe Vaklovic and Mark Gold are our guests this weekend. We'll talk to them right after the break. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, a lot to talk about in the roundtables. We have USDA reports, which produced some big surprises. The derecho that went across Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, looking at the damage of that. But Joe, let's start with the reports. Some major surprises here, some major fireworks. What was the biggest surprise in the acreage? The acreage numbers for corn and soybeans were the big shocker here. Soybeans in particular, uh, the soybean acreage number um, came in at 83 and a half million, which was more than 4 million acres below the average trade guess and more than 4 million acres below March intentions. It's an absolute game changer in regard to the soybean balance sheets and uh, what it means. It gives you very, very little room for error in regard to yield and production given this lower acreage number. On the flip side, we saw a higher corn acreage number. It went up to 94.1 from 92 even in March. So it was it was a big divergence in the markets, uh, sell off in corn on a higher acreage number and a sharp rally in soybeans on a drastically lower acreage number. Mark, we know that dry years, if farmers can get in the field and plant corn, that's exactly what they're going to do. You talk about it, farmers love to plant corn. So why was this such a surprise that we did see this many more acres this year? Well, I think it's a matter of you know, how much were they actually going to do? And, you know, the numbers bear it out that given good weather in April, farmers will plant more corn. So I think that's kind of what we saw out here. And uh, uh, it's not all that surprising. It's just the, the corn acres going up as much as they did wasn't that big of a surprise. It's the beans coming down that was the bigger surprise. And now you've left with very tight carryouts on the beans. And this is assuming the government's right on yield at 181.5 on corn and 52 on beans. And I can't believe we're near there, even with the rains that we've seen. Well, both of you, I know, calling this a game changer. Before we get into the derecho and kind of looking at what possible damage we have there, wheat acres, cotton acres saw some changes there. We figured we would see a reduction in cotton acres just because of, of the wet areas of Texas. But anything in the cotton or the wheat areas that will be a game changer for those balance sheets, Joe? 
Uh, the wheat numbers, I mean, the all wheat number was kind of as expected. I'm looking at my screen here to go through the uh, classes. Uh, the Durham number, if you're uh, up north, you're going Durham wheat was below expectations. And the spring wheat number was well above expectations. So you did have some uh, spreading going on and kind of the wheat complex here following the report. All right, Mark, now that we have the, the, the acreage report, also grain stocks, some adjustments there. We're continuing to see these grain stocks tighten. So farmers asking, okay, where are these stocks going? Did USDA give us any clues? Well, I think when you look at the corn acres, they, they came out with lower stocks by about 243 million. But now you add in four, more, more, four million more, five million more acres of corn. And, you know, these stocks, in my opinion, with the yield that they're punching in, we could go well over a three billion bushel carry out here without any trouble at all. The beans, on the other hand, you know, if you use a 52 bushel yield, I've got a possible carry out of, you know, 132. Now, if you take one bushel an acre off that 52, you got a bean market that you're going to have to use price to, to uh, ration the available supply. I mean, for the beans, this is a game changer. Now, where are we going to get all this feed? You know, corn's going to be cheap out here. They're going to be feeding an awful lot of corn. I wouldn't be that bearish corn down here, not with the beans doing what they're doing. Joe, for you, when you look at these grain stocks, I mean, you you said it was a great game changer for, for soybeans. Mark says it was a game changer for soybeans. But on corn, do you agree with Mark there that you wouldn't get that bearish here at these levels? Um, I don't know that I'm bullish or bearish. I'll tell you this, the uh, yield number and the acreage numbers are going to be digest, not, not the yield number, but the acreage numbers that we saw today. They will be digested by the trade very quickly. It'll take maybe another day or two. And we're going to be on again, trading weather yield prospects. And the one thing we haven't discussed is demand. Um, new crop demand for U.S. corn and U.S. soybeans is not good. The book of export sales is terrible. Ethanol production has not been where it needs to be. The one uh, bright spot would be soybean crush. And, and we're going to continue to set records there because of the crush expansion. But I think that uh, as prices rise, especially in soybeans, you've probably got to look at the demand side. And you could, this, you could say this for the corn balance sheet too. USDA is in all likelihood overstating new crop demand for both of those crops um, on the balance sheets, given what we know today. Yeah, we need to talk about demand. Are they also overstating yields? We need to talk about that. Derecho damage, as well as the hogs and pigs report that came out this week. So we have a lot more to cover. Stick with us. We'll have much more U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Fireworks, cookouts. All of those are staples to celebrate July 4th, the day the Second Continental Congress ratified the Declaration of Independence, which ultimately established the United States of America. But for some of that history behind the piece of history, we're turning to John Phipps this weekend. As all of us know, the Declaration of Independence we celebrate this holiday was written by the great patriot and president, Thomas Jefferson, more or less. While it is true the bulk of the stirring words were Jefferson's, he didn't just scribble it onto the parchment in a moment of inspiration. As writers learn, a first draft crafted with hours of toil and thought inevitably falls into the hands of writers' natural enemies, editors. In American Scripture, Pauline Myers' detailed and wonderfully readable history of this founding document, she follows the creation of the Declaration step by laborious step. 
It's a familiar story to writers of all kinds and not for those faint of heart. Jefferson did pen the spirited and arguably a little bit long-winded prose of that first sacrificial lamb of text, but he was not above, uh, well, borrowing passages from similar declarations that had been issued for, by state legislatures and some phrases from fellow delegates, occasionally with permission. He also had the magnificent gift of soaring eloquence and a seemingly endless supply of adjectives and adverbs. The early result was a declaration a tad longer than what we know today, at least a third or more. The most chilling part is his work was first submitted not just to an editor, but a committee, all with firm opinions of their own writing judgment. To be fair, they did correct and tighten up the petition for the better. Maybe, but Je for Jefferson, every minor deletion was an amputation, every change of phrase a desecration. And just when you think the process could not have been more painful, the entire Congress set as a committee of the whole to continue to fiddle with those precious paragraphs for hours. Perhaps wisely, there is no definitive documentation of Jefferson's first draft. Likewise, the sausage-making details of Congress's mass proofreading were not recorded either. The composition of the Declaration might be best compared to one person painstakingly assembling a difficult jigsaw puzzle while passers-by sporadically crowd in, mess with the careful sorting, and force in pieces from other puzzles. Maybe it is a miraculous document. Here's wishing you a happy 4th of July. We're hoping ours has rained out. I second that, John. We're also hoping for rain. All right, up next, there may not be any blue, but it's a tractor that boasts its iconic red and white colors proudly. We're off to North Carolina for Tractor Tales next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall, 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales and a treat for you this week. We're heading to one of my favorite states to visit, North Carolina, to check out a classic Farmall 100. This tractor came about an hour and a half from here. Uh, I've been looking at a tractor to cultivate my garden with. I didn't, I didn't have a tractor I could plant and, without having to use a hoe and use a tiller. So I've been looking for a cultivating tractor and the Farmall made a good series that does that. This one's got a little more sentimental value to it. Uh, I grew up on a Farmall 100 when I was a little fella, learned how to drive 10 or 12 years old on a Farmall 100. So when I found this one online in Reedsville, North Carolina, about an hour and a half away, I called a guy up and drove up there to take a look at it. He said he just had posted it on Facebook. He said, I've had four people to call me or Craigslist. I said, I'm on my way to Reedsville. So I took off to Reedsville and uh, went up and looked at it, made a deposit and brought it back home a couple of days later. Well, not knowing, not knowing much about the history of how well the tractor had been taken care of, I put it in the shop and started doing maintenance on it, changing the oil, checking the fluids, uh, greasing it, putting new grease fittings on it, things that really needed to be, be done to it. I asked the guy when I bought it when the last time he changed the oil, and he said, well, it was changed three years ago when I bought it, so I knew it needed an oil change. A couple of weeks ago, I found a set of cultivators I wanted. The sweeps came with it on the back and some round discs used for hilling. I've uh, had to buy a couple of letters on the front to Farmall. One of them was gone, so I bought a little to try to bring it back up to 
in good shape and I've got a full set of decals for it. I just had, I've got to find out where they go to be sure I'm putting them in the proper place before I put them on. But as president of the Tractor Club this year, the Lord Granville Agricultural Heritage Association, I thought it would be appropriate for the president to have a tractor that he could show, so I've got a tractor. What an icon, the Farm All 100. All right, up next, leading ag economists think that high production costs could weigh on agriculture through this year as well as next. It's a unique look at agriculture through the lens of leading economists. We'll look at the brand new Ag Economist's monthly monitor next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, the farm economy is always under a microscope. And when it comes to tracking the health of agriculture, there is a monthly survey of farmers, even one of ag bankers, but nothing that taps into the expertise of leading ag economists. That's why Farm Journal is teaming up with the University of Missouri to introduce the Ag Economist's monthly monitor. And as we show you this weekend, commodity prices may still be strong for crops and cattle, but high production costs could be a heavy weight for ag even throughout 2024. A new survey of nearly 50 ag economists from across the country launched this week, giving a glimpse into where leading economists think the ag economy is heading. I think what's most surprising here is that on average, those more than 40 economists roughly are in alignment with what the, the more general perception of where agriculture is headed. What surprised me is the amount of volatility around that average estimate. Scott Brown of the University of Missouri helps author the Ag Economist's Monthly Monitor. He says the group of economists were carefully selected for their expertise, making it the first of its kind. I think this is unique in that it's the only one I'm aware of that's actually looking at uh, agricultural economists' perspectives on uh, what's happening in the farming economy. He says the economists also span across a wide geography in the U.S. We're talking about reaching across livestock economists, crop economists, whether that's cotton or corn and soybeans or milk or hogs or cattle. So we're getting maybe a little broader perspective. The first Ag Economist monthly monitor shows that economists have a waning outlook on the ag economy. Number one, production costs staying high. We, we saw that a lot in the answers as to why uh, uh, folks felt like we were going to continue to, to move uh, lower in terms of that financial health side of the index. Uh, maybe a little weaker demand, both international uh, export demand in some cases, as well as as domestic demand uh, maybe slowing down a little bit as uh, the economy is, has been growing a little more slowly. Higher interest rates were mentioned several times. Economists varied on expectations for commodity prices over the next two years, but the majority of economists see corn, soybean, and wheat prices trending lower both this year and next. A big question mark right now, the weather and the impact on crop yields. But economists think the current USDA estimate of 181.5 trendline national yield may be too far-fetched at this point for corn. The, the average uh, yield estimate uh, on the corn side from this survey was a little more than 178 bushels an acre uh, with the downside of 175 uh, in terms of the low end of that. Uh, likewise, on soybeans, uh, right at about 51 bushels per acre, uh, below where USDA would currently see both corn and soybean yields. I will say those are going to change quickly as we look at uh, weather and, and uh, what's occurred since 
of this survey would have gone out roughly a week ago now. Economists were bullish on beef prices, expecting a cut to cattle inventory in USDA's upcoming July inventory report, with the possibility of cattle prices to hit higher highs. You know, they, they talked about uh, fed cattle prices in 2024 that would average, annual average, of $181 per hundred. Uh, some saying we could get pretty close to $200 uh, per hundred for an annual average. That's just uh, prices that we haven't seen uh, ever in this industry. The economists may have been bullish on beef, but the optimism quickly faded when talking about dairy and hogs. Every cost category was higher, yet this demand side may be weakening. And I'll even say internationally, it's been a little slower uh, in terms of growth in front of us. It's that combination of slower demand coupled with expenses that stay high that has really put the squeeze on those two industries in particular. The biggest question mark right now may be weather and the impact on crop yields and feed availability. But Brown says he's also interested in watching the broader trends as the new survey gets underway. What's, uh, tw what's July look like relative to June in terms of that overall uh, general health? I'm, I'm, I'm curious to watch as this group of experts continues to, to digest what's happening in agriculture. Now, talk of a recession has also been on economists' minds for now a couple years, and the monthly monitor shows not all economists even agree on that. The monitor found the majority of economists today somewhat disagree that the U.S. will enter a recession this year, but several somewhat agreed that a recession could still be looming yet this year. All right, when we come back, we'll dive into our marketing roundtable discussion with Mark Gold and Joe Baklovic. That happens in just two minutes. Joe Vaklovic and Mark Gold rejoining us. Mark, we had that derecho come through northern uh, Missouri. We had Iowa, Illinois, Indiana. Then it turned south. I mean, there's a lot of damage out there when you look at these fields. A lot of question marks about how much of this corn will pop back up. Mark, talking with Ken Ferry out of Illinois, he says it's actually impacting the earlier planted corn more because that is the corn that was tasseling. And it's going to be hard for that crop to recover. Later planted corn should bear a little bit, fare a little bit better in this. But what will the trade be watching and trying to assess as we head into next week, considering those areas also got rains? Well, you know, the rains where you didn't get the winds is certainly going to help the crop. And I'm not going to go against Ken Ferry. He's the smartest agronomist I know. And I agree that the early planted corn that was tasseling early is going to be hurt, hit by these derechos out here. You know, before we had these rains this week, we were looking at a, a, a corn yield maybe 174, 175, somewhere in that range. I think you got to bump it up a little bit because a lot of areas did get some rains without the derechos, but we don't know the derecho damage. We'll have to see what the crop progress says on Monday, but I'm not sure it's going to show all the damage by any stretch of the imagination. And the bottom line is the corn yield, in my opinion, can't get anywhere near 181.5. I think it'll be tough for the beans to get anywhere near 52. So, you know, I, We've had rains. We're going to get more rains here this weekend. But is it a little bit too much too late? We'll have to see. The crops are resilient. We know that. Yeah, so coming in next week, Joe, as you look at, you know, the, the reports that we have and then also weighing the rains and the wind damage, what will the trade be watching? And really, what do you think could move the markets as now we head into next week? 
you should be back to weather after we take a day or two to digest this report. You should be back to weather. There's rain in the forecast and the weather forecasts, models, meteorologists, they're uh, looking for this shift toward a wetter pattern during the month of July. And if that's the case, corn crop, generally speaking, made in the month of July, you know, there's still um, some bushels that could probably be tacked on uh, versus current perceptions. Um, so I mean, you've got some more time, uh, but I, I think the weather is still going to be the, the big deal here for another two or three weeks. Do we catch these rains? Not only, you know, this coming weekend and into the first couple of days of July, but do you catch the rains mid-July, late July and into August to help the soybean crop? Mark, so for now, do you think the trade is not worried about how poor demand does look right now on the books for both corn and soybeans? You know, we look at all the, the crush facilities that are being built, the ethanol plants out here. I still think uh, over the next year or two, we're going to see big demand out here. And at lower prices, we're going to get more demand. Uh, you know, I'm not that concerned about the demand side of the equation. Uh, we're just going to have a lot of corn we're going to have to go through. But low prices, cure low prices, and we'll, we'll, we'll rally it. The bigger problem is how high can these beans go? And I'm not sure. You know, we made a new contract high in July beans here today. Now, we're not we're a little bit under that right now. But uh, this is powerful in the beans. Um, you know, we had that sale to China this morning. If they're coming back into the market, that's all positive. I wouldn't want to be short anything down here. Joe, do you think that USDA will have to make some adjustments to yield coming up in this next WASD report in a couple of weeks? They don't have to. Not if not if the rains fall over the next four or five, six days, they may kick the can down the road. There are people out there, I don't have an opinion on yield on June 30th. There are people out there who still believe a trend is possible. Maybe that's not a popular opinion. I just don't know which side of the coin USDA is going to sit on. Do they have enough evidence given the drought, given the conditions to lower yield? If they did, I, I think that's probably I think that's probably warranted. I mean, pull up the drought monitor. Even though we've caught some rains, it's probably warranted to reduce your expectations a little bit. That's not to say that they couldn't come back and, and be higher later, I guess, if if a really good weather scenario unplays uh, or unfolds in July and into August. All right, Mark Gold, Joe Vaklovic, thank you both so much for joining us this week on this crazy reaction to the markets as well as just the reports that we saw on Friday. Thank you both. All right, we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Flip Your Soil on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Economics, farming's go-to information resource. Get your questions answered at Nutrien-Economics.com. Well, it's a goal for most farmers to have healthier, more productive soils and higher yields. But the approach depends on where you farm. Michelle Rook introduces us to an Alabama family that has flipped their soil by making one of their most precious resources a top priority on their farm. Implementing soil health practices is more difficult in the deep south than in the richer soils of the Corn Belt, but it may be even more important for achieving high yields. That's a challenge that's been taken on by the Bridge Force, and they've even turned it into their own brand. We have done several things to improve soil health. In the red clay soils of Alabama, soil health is critical for improving the water holding capacity of fields to sustain crop growth, especially during times of drought stress. If they don't get a rain every week to 10 days, don't get a good rain every week to 10 days, the, whether it's cotton or corn, it will, you know, you could, your crop would just melt away. 
And that's why the bridge force have been doing strip tills since 2002 and minimum and no tills since 1996. These practices have gone a long way to improving the organic matter in their soils. You know, our organic matter has increased you know, half, quarter percent, which is tremendous in our soil. Plus, strip-till helps keep soil nutrients near crop roots and more readily available for intake. The strip-till, I think, is a real good thing for us. We like it because you get a rain, a big rain after you, you don't get runoff. You know, you don't get this fertilizer, all this running and getting into the uh, water system. It's just, you know, it's all still in the soil. So that strip-till helps when we inject the fertilizer, the P and K into the ground. That's... Uh, we, 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 we think that's a good thing. The bridge force have also diversified their rotations. It's a mixture of one-third cotton, one-third corn maybe that year, and one-third wheat. And uh, uh, the wheat, after the wheat, we plant soybeans. Plus, they grow a wide variety of cover crops, including cereal, rye, wheat, clover, and tillage radishes. They're adding biomass to help improve the soil tilth and then those tillage radish when those roots go down into the soil they break up compaction and make to make a path for the roots on the crop you plant. Greg says he sees many signs their efforts are paying off. Years ago when I was younger when we were doing all the tillage you would go out and feel you wouldn't find an earthworm. But now you can go out and dig and you can you can find that for them. So that's we know that's a that's a big improvement. Plus they're getting a yield response. Generally it's a 10-15% yield increase. All these practices also allow them to produce their crops more sustainably. The reason Target came to them in 2020 to source sustainable cotton, which kickstarted their own brand. In 2023, we launched Bridge Fourth Cut, and we are in negotiations with other apparel manufacturers where they'll use Bridge Fourth Cotton in their products. He says so far the venture hasn't moved the revenue meter, but it's a great marketing tool and is raising awareness about sustainable farming practices, which are a key to productive soils for the next generations. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you, Michelle. Well, when we come back, the nuclear discussion is not over for John. Customer support is next. Well, there's a lot of talk about nuclear energy and even some shifting views. But is nuclear power truly safe and clean? That's customer support. Some feedback today about nuclear power safety. The idea that nuclear energy is the cleanest and least detrimental to humanity is way off. Obviously, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and radioactive waste disposal missed your radar. I believe Three Mile, Three Mile Island began the downfall of nuclear energy in the U.S., and the other catastrophes simply reinforced the resistance, not your comic book theory. And that's from Joseph Beach. Three Mile Island was probably an inflection point for nuclear power acceptance. I was talking, though, about why we think nuclear power is hazardous and why that fear is unfounded. For example, 
The Three Mile Island incidents caused zero deaths from any cause and no measurable contamination in the immediate area. Continuing research shows no long-term environmental effects. The worst nuclear accident, Chernobyl, had a death toll of 78, only 34 of which were from radioactive exposure, the rest from the explosion. Over time, it may cause approximately 150 some odd deaths from thyroid cancer due to the blunder of allowing milk to be sold from cows grazing on nearby pastures immediately after the incident. Soviet mismanagement of Chernobyl was textbook what not to do. Fukushima deaths totaled one from the blast, one years later from lung cancer, but over 2,000 from the trauma of evacuating 160,000 people and from the fatalities of the largest earthquake in Japanese history. There is no evidence to support fears of massive fatalities from nuclear plants, nor can reactors turn into bombs, although nuclear weapons certainly confused risk perception. As for waste, it is isolated from the environment, unlike CO2 emissions. There is no perfectly harmless source of electrical power, but nuclear is safer with fewer emissions than almost all. So why does it scare us? The overblown fear of the same technology as a medical x-ray served as a great plot device for dystopian fiction and gruesome humor. The term radioactive has become synonymous with untouchable or poisonous. Political policies like tax increases are often termed radioactive, for example. Reactor accidents provided an excuse to label a publicly misunderstood technology, like GMOs, as riskier than the alternatives. Those alternatives had economic reasons to disparage nuclear competition. The public acquired this baseless fear from sloppy media portrayals and distorted use of technological terms. Thank you, John. Well, I know John's a fan of Star Trek, but I don't know about the Andy Griffith show. Well, if you are a fan of that show, we just have the road trip of a lifetime. That's American Countryside next. The Andy Griffith show was on for eight years, but the reruns are still creating Andy Griffith fans today. The fictional show created fame for one small town, and we're road tripping to Mayberry and American Countryside this week for a slice of Americana. Mike Cockrum lives in a town that is often known by a different name. The connection is, you know, Andy's born and raised here. And so you get a lot of Mayberry fans come looking for Mayberry. Mike is speaking of Andy Griffith, who grew up in Mount Airy, North Carolina. But many people just refer to it as Mayberry, since that's the place Andy lived on the long-running TV show. But for a couple of decades at least, there really wasn't much of Mayberry that you could find in Mount Airy, save some common street and place names. When more tourists began coming here in the late 90s and early 2000s, Mike had an idea. I'm old car and up and restoring, fixing up cars since I was a teenager. And so I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get me one of them old Ford Galaxies like I used on a show and fix it up like a squad car and ride people around town in it. The Mayberry squad car tours were born. Mike has restored several old Ford Galaxies now, making them appear just like the one Andy and Barney used to patrol Mayberry. We started at Wally's, uh, Wally's filling station here. That's our home office, and uh, we leave here, and we go out to our uh, granite quarry. It's about a mile out of town. Mount Airy is known as the Granite City. That's our official nickname. And Mike and his drivers are known to let the siren wail as they make the run through Mount Airy streets. 
tour that takes you past places like the Snappy Lunch and other iconic stores from the show. You go by Andy's old school, where he first began to sing and perform, a place that today brings many visitors to snap a picture with Andy and Opie. But back at Mike's headquarters is a real gym, a place that appears straight from your TV set. It's a recreation of the uh, courthouse. Uh, you know, it's pretty close. It's just a just a recreation. It's just it's free, and people come in and take pictures. The inside of the building is a perfect replica of Andy's sheriff's office, complete with the jail cells that held folks like Otis. Plus, he's recreated many other buildings and scenes often seen on the show. It's a place where people enjoy spending time, remembering the storylines, and laughing about some of their favorite episodes. Although it's been decades since the show was produced, the people just keep coming. You know, people you know, say it's going to die out, but I've not seen any indication of that. In fact, we see a lot of young folks that's into the show. It's been over 50 years since the show was on television, but yet the message is timeless. A sheriff in a friendly town teaching us the lessons of life yet today. <coughs> Traveling the countryside in Mayberry, Mount Airy, North Carolina. I'm Andrew McCray. The perfect way to end our show just ahead of the 4th of July holiday. Thank you, Andrew. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.